Chapter Four of the Amateur Immigrant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Amateur Immigrant by Robert Louis Stevenson, Steerage Type. We had a fellow on board, an Irish American, for all the world like a beggar in the Prince by Callo, one eye with great splayed crow's feet round his sockets, a knotty squab nose coming down over his moustache, a miraculous hat. A shirt that had been white a ages ago, an alpaca coat in its last sleeves, and without hyperbole, no buttons to his trousers. Even in these rags and tatters, the man twinkled all over with impudence like a piece of sham jewellery, and I have heard him offer a situation to one of his fellow passengers with the air of a lord. Nothing could overlie such a fellow. A kind of base success was written on his brow. He was then in his ill days, but I can imagine him in Congress with his mouth full of bombast and soda. As we moved in the same circle, I was brought necessarily into his society. I do not think I ever heard him say anything that was true, kind, or interesting, but there was entertainment in the man's demeanour. You might call him a half-educated Irish tig. Our Russian made a remarkable contrast to this impossible fellow. Rumours and legends were current in the steerages about his antecedents. Some said he was a nihilist approaching. Others set him down for a harmless spendthrift, who had squandered fifty thousand roubles, and whose father had now dispatched him to America by way of penance. Either tale might flourish in security. There was no contradiction to be feared, for the hero spoke not one word of English. I got on with him lumberingly enough in broken German, and learnt from his own lips that he had been an apothecary. He carried the photograph of his betrothed in a pocket-book, and remarked that it did not do her justice. The cut of his head stood out from among the passengers with an air of startling strangeness. The first natural instinct was to take him for a desperado but although the features to our western eyes had a barbaric and unhomely cast, the eye both reassured and touched. It was large and very dark and soft, with an expression of dumb endurance, as if it had often looked on desperate circumstances, and never looked on them without resolution. He cried out when I used the word, "'No, no,' he said, "'not resolution.' THE RESOLUTION TO ENDURE, I EXPLAINED. AND THEN HE SHRUGGED HIS SHOULDERS AND SAID, AH, yeah, WITH GUSTO, LIKE A MAN WHO HAS BEEN FLATTERED IN HIS FAVORITE pretensions. INDEED, HE WAS ALWAYS HINTING AT SOME SECRET SORROW, AND HIS LIFE, HE SAID, HAD BEEN ONE OF UNUSUAL TROUBLE AND ANXIETY, SO THAT THE LEGENDS OF THE STEERAGE MAY HAVE REPRESENTED AT LEAST SOME SHADOW OF THE TRUTH. Once and once only he sang a song at our concerts, standing forth without embarrassment, his great stature somewhat humped, his long arms frequently extended, his Kalmuck head thrown backward. It was a suitable piece of music, as deep as a cow's bellow and wild like the white sea. He was struck and charmed by the freedom and sociality of our manners. At home, he said, no one on a journey would speak to him, but those to whom he would not care to speak, thus unconsciously involving himself in the condemnation of his countrymen. But Russia was soon to be changed. The ice of the never was softening under the sun of civilization, 
The new ideas, the eine feine violin, were audible among the big empty drum-notes of imperial diplomacy, and he looked to see a great revival, though with a somewhat indistinct and childish hope. We had a father and son who made a pair of jack-of-all-trades. It was the son who sang the death of Nelson under such contrarious circumstances. He was by trade a shearer of ship-plates, but he could touch the organ and lead two choirs and played the flute and piccolo in a professional string band. His repertory of songs was beside inexhaustible and ranged impartially from the very best to the very worst within his reach. Nor did he seem to make the least distinction between these extremes, but would cheerily follow up Tom Bowling with around her splendour form. The father, an old cheery small piece of manhood, could do everything connected with tin-work from one end of the process to the other, use almost every carpenter's tool, and make picture-frames to boot. "'I set down with silver plate every Sunday,' he said, "'and pictures on the wall. "'I have made enough money to be rolling in my carriage. "'But, sir,' looking at me unsteadily with his bright roomy eyes, "'I was troubled with a drunken wife.' "'He took a hostile view of matrimony in consequence. "'It's an old saying,' he remarked. "'God made them, and the devil he mixed them.' "'I think he was justified by his experience. "'It was a dreary story.' He would bring home three pounds on Saturday, and on Monday all the clothes would be in pawn. Sick of the useless struggle, he gave up a paying contract, and contented himself with small and ill-paid jobs. "'A bad job was as good as a good job for me,' he said. "'It all went the same way.' Once the wife showed signs of amendment, she kept steady for weeks on end. It was again worth while to labour and to do one's best. The husband found a good situation some distance from home, and to make a little upon every hand started the wife in a cookshop. The children were here and there busy as mice, savings began to grow together in the bank, and the golden age of hope had returned again to that unhappy family. But one week my old acquaintance, getting earlier through with his work, came home on the Friday instead of the Saturday, and there was his wife to receive him reeling drunk. He took and gave her a pair of black eyes, for which I pardoned him, nailed up the cook-shop door, gave up his situation, and resigned himself to a life of poverty with the workhouse at the end. As the children came to their full age, they fled the house, and established themselves in other countries. Some did well, some not so well. But the father remained at home, alone with his drunken wife, all his sound-hearted pluck and varied accomplishments depressed and negated. Was she dead now, or after all these years, had he broken the chain and run away from home like a schoolboy? I could not discover which. But here at least he was out on an adventure, and still one of the bravest and most youthful men on board. "'Now, I suppose, I must put my old bones to work again,' he said. "'But I can do a turn yet.' "'And the son, to whom he was going,' I asked, "'was he not able to support him?' "'Oh, yes,' he replied, "'but I'm never happy without a job on hand. "'And I'm stout. "'I can eat almost anything. "'You see no craze about me.' 
This tale of a drunken wife was paralleled on board by another of a drunken father. He was a capable man with a good chance in life, but he had drunk up two thriving businesses like a bottle of sherry, and involved his sons along with him in ruin. Now they are on board with us, fleeing his disastrous neighbourhood. Total abstinence, like all ascetical conclusions, is unfriendly to the most generous, cheerful, and human parts of man. But it could have adduced many instances and arguments for amongst our ship's company. I was one day conversing with a kind and happy Scotsman, running to fat and perspiration in the physical, but with a taste for poetry and a genial sense of fun. I had asked him his hopes in emigrating. They were like those of so many others, vague and unfounded. Times were bad at home. They were said to have a turn for the better in the States. A man could get on anywhere, he thought. That was precisely the weak point of his position. For if he could get on America, why could he not do the same in Scotland? But I never had the courage to use that argument that was often on the tip of my tongue. And instead I agreed with him heartily, adding with reckless originality, if the man stuck to his work and kept away from the drink. Ah, he said he slowly, the drink. You see, that's just my trouble. He spoke with a simplicity that was touching, looking at me at the same time with something strange and timid in his eye. Half ashamed, half sorry, like a good child who knows he should be beaten. You would have said he recognised the destiny to which he was born and accepted the consequences mildly. Like the merchant Abuda, he was at the same time fleeing from his destiny and carrying it along with him, the whole at an expense of six guineas. As far as I saw, drink, idleness and incompetency were the three great causes of emigration. And for all of them, and drink first and foremost, this trick of getting transported overseas appears to me the silliest means of cure. You cannot run away from a weakness. You must sometime fight it out or perish. And if that be so, why not now and where you stand? Silum non animum. Change glen livet for bourbon, and it is still whisky, only not so good. A sea voyage will not give a man the nerve to put aside cheap pleasure. Emigration has to be done before we climb the vessel. An aim in life is the only fortune worth the finding, and is not to be found in foreign lands, but in the heart itself. Speaking generally, there is no vice of this kind more contemptible than another, for each is but a result and outward sign of a soul tragically shipwrecked. In the majority of cases, cheap pleasure is resorted to by way of anodyne. The pleasure-seeker sets forth upon life with high and difficult ambitions. He meant to be nobly good and nobly happy, though it was at little pains as possible to himself. And it is because all has failed in his celestial enterprise that you now behold him rolling in the garbage. Hence the comparative success of the teetotal pledge, because to a man who had nothing it sets at least a negative aim in life. Somewhat as prisoners beguile their days by taming a spider, the reformed drunkard makes an interest out of abstaining from intoxicating drinks, and may live for that negation. There is something at least not to be done every day, and a cold triumph awaits him every evening.
we had one on board with us, whom I have already referred to under the name Mackay, who seemed to me not only a good instance of this failure in life of which we have been speaking, but a good type of the intelligence which here surrounded me. Physically he was a small Scotsman, standing a little back as though he were already carrying the elements of a corporation, and his look somewhat marred by the smallness of his eyes. Mentally he was endowed above the average. There were but few subjects on which he could not converse with understanding and a dash of wit, delivering himself slowly and with gusto, like a man who enjoyed his own sententiousness. He was a dry, quick, pertinent debater, speaking with a small voice, and swinging on his heels to launch and emphasize an argument. When he began the discussion, he could not bear to leave it off, but would pick the subject to the bone, without once relinquishing a point. An engineer by trade, Mackay believed in the unlimited perfectibility of all machines except the human machine. The latter he gave up with ridicule for a compound of carrion and perverse gases. He had an appetite for disconnected facts, which I could only compare to the savage taste for beads. What is called information was indeed a passion with the man, and he not only delighted to receive it, but could pay you back in kind. With all these capabilities, he was Mackay, already no longer young, on his way to a new country, with no prospects, no money, and but little hope. He was almost tedious in the cynical disclosures of his despair. "'The ship may go down for me,' he would say, "'now or to-morrow. I have nothing to lose and nothing to hope.' And again, "'I am sick of the whole damned performance.' He was, like the kind little man already quoted, another so-called victim of the bottle. But Mackay was miles from publishing his weakness to the world, laid the blame of his failure on corrupt masters and a corrupt state policy, and after he had been one night overtaken and had played the buffoon in his cups, sternly, though not without tact, suppressed all reference to his escapade. It was a treat to see him manage this, the various jesters withered under his gaze, and you were forced to recognise in him a certain steely force, and a gift of command which might have ruled a senate. In truth it was not whisky that had ruined him. He was ruined long before for all good human purposes but conversation. His eyes were sealed by a cheap school-book materialism. He could see nothing in the world but money and steam-engines. He did not know what you meant by the word happiness. He had forgotten the simple emotions of childhood, and perhaps never encountered the delights of youth. He believed in production, that useful figment of economy, as if it had been real like laughter, and, and production, without prejudice to liquor, was his god and guide. One day he took me to task, novel cry to me, upon the overpayment of literature. Literary men, he said, were more highly paid than artisans, yet the artisan made threshing machines and butter churns, and the man of letters, except in the way of a few useful handbooks, made nothing worth the while. He produced a mere fancy article. Mackay's notion of a book was Hopus's measure. Now in my turn I have possessed and even studied that work, but if I were to be left to-morrow on Juan Fernandez, 
Purposes is not the book I should choose for my companion volume. I tried to fight the point with Mackay. I made him own that he had taken pleasure in reading books otherwise to his view insignificant, but he was too wary to advance a step beyond the admission. It was in vain for me to argue that here was pleasure ready-made and running from the spring, whereas his ploughs and butter-churns were but means and mechanisms to give men the necessary food and leisure before they start upon the search for pleasure. He jibed and ran away from such conclusions. The thing was different, he declared, and nothing was serviceable but what had to do with food. Eat, 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 he cried. That's the bottom and the top. By an odd irony of circumstance, he grew so much interested in this discussion that he let the hour slip by unnoticed and had to go without his tea. He had enough sense and humour, indeed he had no lack of either, to have chuckled over this himself in private, and even to me he referred to it with the shadow of a smile. Mackay was a hot bigot. He would not hear of religion. I have seen him waste hours of time in arguments with all sorts of poor human creatures, who understood neither him nor themselves, and he had the boyishness to dissect and criticise even so small a matter as the riddler's definition of a mind. He snorted aloud with zealotry and the lust for intellectual battle, anything whatever it was that seemed to him likely to discourage the continued passionate production of corn and steam-engines, he resented like a conspiracy against the people. Thus, when I put in the plea for literature, that was only in good books or in the society of the good, that man could get help in his conduct, he declared that I was in a different world from him. Damn my conduct, said he. I have given it up for a bad job. My question is, can I drive a nail? And he plainly looked upon me as one who was insidiously seeking to reduce people's annual belly full of corn and steam engines. It may be argued that these opinions spring from the defect of culture, that a narrow and pinching way of life not only exaggerates to a man the importance of material conditions, but indirectly, by denying him the necessary books and leisure, keeps his mind ignorant of larger thoughts, and that hence springs this overwhelming concern about diet, and hence the bald view of existence professed by Mackay. Had this been an English peasant, the conclusion would be tenable. But Mackay had most of the elements of a liberal education. He had skirted metaphysical and mathematical studies. He had a thoughtful hold of what he knew, which would be exceptional among bankers. He had been brought up in the midst of hothouse piety, and told with incongruous pride the story of his own brother's deathbed ecstasies. Yet he had somehow failed to fulfil himself, and was adrift like a dead thing amongst external circumstances, without hope or lively preference or shaping aim. And further there seemed a tendency amongst many of his fellows to fall in the same blank and unlovely opinions. One thing indeed is not to be learned in Scotland, and that is the way to be happy. Yet that is the whole of culture, and perhaps two-thirds of morality. Can it be that the Puritan school, by divorcing a man from nature, by thinning out his instincts, and setting a stamp of disapproval on a whole series of human activities and interests, leads at last directly to material greed. Nature is a good guide through life, 
and the love of simple pleasures next, if not superior, to virtue. And we had on board an Irishman who based his claim to the widest and most affectionate popularity precisely on these two qualities, that he was natural and happy. He boasted a fresh colour, a tight little figure, unquenchable gaiety, and indefatigable good will. His clothes puzzled the diagnostic mind, till you were heard that he had once been a private coachman, when they became eloquent and seemed a part of his biography. His face contained the rest, and I fear a prophecy of the future. The hawk's nose above accorded so well with the pink baby's mouth below. His spirit and pride belonged, you may say, to the nose, while it was from the general shiftlessness expressed by the other that had thrown him from situation to situation, and at length on board the emigrant ship. Barney ate, so to speak, nothing from the galley. His own tea, butter and eggs supported him throughout the voyage. And about meal-time you might find him up to the elbows in amateur cookery. He was the first voice heard singing amongst all the passengers. He was the first to fill the dancing. From Loch Foyle to Sandy Hook, there was not a piece of fun undertaken, but there was Barney in the midst. You ought to have seen him when he stood up to sing at our concerts, his tight little figure stepping to and fro, and his feet shuffling to the air, his eyes seeking and bestowing encouragement, and who enjoyed the bow so nicely calculated between jest and earnest, between grace and clumsiness, with which he brought each song to a conclusion. He was not only a great favourite amongst ourselves, but his songs attracted the lords of the saloon, who often leaned to hear him over the rails of the hurricane deck. He was somewhat pleased, but not at all abashed, by this attention. And one night, in the midst of his famous performance of Billy Keogh, I saw him spin half round in a pirouette, and throw an audacious wink to an old gentleman above. This was the more characteristic, as, for all his daffing, he was a modest and very polite little fellow amongst ourselves. He would not have hurt the feelings of a fly, nor throughout the passage did he give a shadow of offence, yet he was always, by his innocent freedoms and love of fun, brought upon that narrow margin where politeness must be natural to walk without a form. He was once seriously angry, and that in a grave, quiet manner, because they supplied no fish on Friday, for Barney was a conscientious Catholic. He had likewise strict notions of refinement, and when, late one evening after the women had retired, a young Scotsman stuck up an indecent song, Barney's drab clothes were immediately missing from the group. His taste was for the society of gentlemen, of whom, with the reader's permission, there was no lack in our five steerages and second cabin and he avoided the rough and positive with a girlish shrinking. Mackay, partly from his superior powers of mind, which rendered him incomprehensible, partly from his extreme opinions, was especially distasteful to the Irishman. I have seen him slink off with backward looks of terror and offended delicacy, while the other, in his witty ugly way, had been professing hostility to God and an extreme theatrical readiness to be shipwrecked on the spot. These utterances hurt the little coachman's modesty like a bad word. End of section 4